Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Listening to music, crafting, or curling up to a documentary, these are all ways to engage in the arts and humanities. And many of us, 9 in 10, actually according to a recent survey from CT Humanities, claim to have done something like that in the last year. But when was the last time you went to a museum, festival, or play? Or can you think about the last time you signed up for a dance class or even a book club? 45% of Connecticut's cultural institutions have yet to return to pre-pandemic attendance levels. But there are plenty of examples of innovation. Coming up, we'll hear from the Maritime Aquarium and the Connecticut Museum of Culture and History. But first, Connecticut Humanities helped lead a push for state funding for cultural organizations in the state, many of which relied on federal relief dollars early on in the pandemic. And joining us to discuss is Jason Mancini. He's the executive director of Connecticut Humanities. Thank you so much, Jason, for joining us this morning. Good morning, Kath. Delighted to be here. And for our listeners, let us know, what's your favorite arts or humanities spot in the state? We're talking museums, historical sites, craft schools, or art spaces. Let us know, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Well, Jason, the arts, culture, and the humanities sector goes well beyond museums. Can you paint us a picture of the range of organizations that's under this umbrella here in Connecticut? Oh, boy. The um, the 700 or so organizations that we funded in the last couple of years range from uh, historical societies, children's museums, cultural centers, uh, tribal organizations, uh, arts councils and arts schools, performing arts centers, nature centers, arboretums, aquariums, a little bit of everything. So every everywhere where there are sites of public engagement and knowledge are the kinds of uh, uh, organizations we attempted to connect with and fund. I was actually just thinking, I, I feel like anything really can be arts and culture if you, if you, you know, think about it. <laughs> so I'm not surprising that the number is high, but also not surprising at the same time. And, you know, many of the organizations that you mentioned just now received federal funding through the American Rescue Plan early on in the pandemic. And now there's been a focus on the governor's budget. So can you tell us about the roadmap for that funding? Sure. Um, after... Uh, our uh, partnership with the Office of the Arts in the last biennium where Connecticut Humanities received $30.7 million. Um, and we used that to create the Connecticut Cultural Fund um, where we awarded those organizations uh, significant uh, operating support funding. Um, and the purpose of that really was to create operating support, uh, a build a digital infrastructure and, better to, and to better connect K-12 students and educators to our arts and humanities organizations. And with the success of that, we wanted to make sure we could build an infrastructure that sustained over time. So Connecticut Humanities and the Office of the Arts 
uh, partnered with the Connecticut uh, Arts Alliance and the Connecticut Tourism Coalition to recognize the integral um, uh, nature of our economy um, and how we could continue this. So we spent a lot of time last year uh, meeting with organizational leaders, cultural leaders, legislators, and members of the public um, who participated in listening sessions. Um, and through that, we developed the, uh, a roadmap for arts, culture, and tourism that sort of laid the groundwork for continuing um, this sort of cultural funding and uh, ensuring that we have a healthy and vibrant cultural sector. So over the course of the fall and um, earlier this year, we spent a bit of time articulating that, presenting that um, uh, to uh, legislators and to our Connecticut audiences. And really what we were looking for is a, an ongoing investment in arts, humanities, culture, tourism, where uh, we could really be competitive regionally with respect to tourism marketing. Um, but we also wanted to continue the cultural fund. So we we're looking for significant investment in that as well as maintaining the existing line items uh, that arts and cultural uh, and tourism organizations receive. Uh, we wanted to continue our competitive funding with Connecticut Humanities and the Office of the Arts. So um, making sure that innovation is still at the center of, of the work that we do and we support. And the, the last piece of that is really uh, focused on workforce development, making sure that we're creating a, a, a rich environment for um, people coming out of our colleges and universities, um, uh, that they have a place um, in Connecticut to live, work, and play as well, but contributing to this sort of vibrant economy that we have. Well, and with so many moving parts and also so many things to grapple with, especially with the pandemic, where does the roadmap, roadmap stand now, you know, especially as far as the Governor uh, Ledamon's latest budget is concerned? Any surprises there? Um, some surprises, you know, some disappointments, but some bright spots. Um, you know, the, the roadmap itself was a $58.5 million ask for the legislature. Um, and we were really hoping that that would um, uh, be attractive given uh, the return on investment, given the broad uh, impact it's had around uh, Connecticut, really touching every Connecticut community. Um, and we got very little of the roadmap we asked for. Um, however, um, the legislature did uh, continue an investment in uh, the Summer at the Museum program, some other investments in line items, um, uh, so roughly $16, 17000000 million uh, in those, including the $10 million in summer at the museum. So, um, you know, we are, we're excited to be running that program in collaboration with the Office of the Arts. Um, and uh, a number of uh, the, the purpose of that program is really to continue uh, an active engagement with family and families and children um, in these sites of learning and knowledge uh, over the course of the summer. So we see some continuity, but we are very interested in continuing to pursue the, the roadmap and, and what we've laid out um, in the second half of the biennium. We think it's still an incredibly important investment um, it was uh, widely uh, heralded by uh, a number of legislators. Um, the public um, really appreciated that investment. And the organizations that participated in this were given the opportunity 
to really um, strengthen themselves, think about their um, sustainable futures, but also how they can best serve their respective uh, audiences. Sounds like a little silver lining there. And our listeners can learn more about participating locations for the summer at the Museum Initiative, which is running through September 4th on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. Adjacent, you know, there's a, a 2022 cultural census that showed overall Connecticut audiences had returned to pre-pandemic levels, but that cumulative number actually doesn't account for everyone. In fact, 45% of cultural organizations are not back to normal. So can you talk about how this sort of slow to return audience rates are also a factor in consideration, especially when you're thinking about the need for funding? Yeah, there's really an uneven recovery. Um, You know, I think the the organizations that we see still uh, enduring um, some hardship are the performing arts centers um, who have really struggled to rebuild their audiences. Uh, children's museums, uh, similarly, um, have been impacted uh, at the same rates. And um, uh, school field trip visitation is, is also declined. You know, our goal is to really build an ecosystem uh, that supports and sustains the entire sector with attention to these organizations uh, and, and sub uh, subsectors that have been disproportionately impacted. But I think if we're if we're not thinking about the whole sector, we won't be approaching this in a in a healthy, uh, sustainable way. So I think the more that we sort of build these um, collaborations, these opportunities to connect and um, um, uh, the, just the broader um, support network, uh, really embracing all of these uh, organizations um, and the public's engagement with those organizations, I think, is key. So wherever we can meet people where they're at and then bring them into organizations um, really gives us a sense of uh, Connecticut residents' connection to arts and humanities. And that's where you see that 90% uh, engagement. Um, people are connecting. And I think the the organizational health that we can rebuild um, into the future is really where we need to be thinking and, and connecting um, families and uh, schools with our cultural organizations. Well, and you just mentioned school trips being on the on the lower side, which makes me super sad because the census did note two uh, particular audience groups that were still down 45 percent each. And school trips is one of them. And the second one is performing arts lovers. And we'll link to our recent conversation about the ways theaters are rebounding on our website as well at ctpublic.org slash where we live. But Jason, I want to ask, just dig in a little bit deeper. You know, why are school trips of particular importance, would you say, to sort of bring back into the forefront of our minds? Well, I think these are the places where, you know, kids get to really see where arts and humanities manifests itself. Um, uh, you know, we we sort of existed in a virtual world for two, two and a half years. Um, and that is really, that produces lots of challenges. Um, you know, there's a lot of social, social emotional uh, learning gaps that have that have clearly uh, manifested themselves um, in in during the pandemic, um, and getting kids back into um, the rhythm of visiting, uh, getting out, getting to learn from uh, professionals in the field, from educators in these cultural organizations, um, gives them access to new ideas. 
um, uh, in our different communities. It connects them to our history and heritage and various um, uh, cultural content. Uh, and I think these are, this is really the, the sort of, um, um, this is, this is really where we, we best engage ourselves, um, in, in sort of this cultural renaissance, I think. And the kids is, the kids are where we need to begin that. Well, I always love a good field trip. So that's why that stat made me really sad. So hopefully that will that will come back up um, soon. And lots of stats going on here today. You know, the survey we referenced earlier, gauging public interest and attendance in the arts and humanities here in Connecticut, also noticed some really interesting differences between performing arts audiences and museums. And so based on the survey, performing arts lovers skew co- about 10 years older. And the demographic is also about 10% wider. So Jason, in general, how would you say arts and humanities organizations are thinking about appealing to a broader audience? Well, I think this is really where, you know, we look both at the the life cycle of a family's experience with arts and culture um, from from young engagement um, at museums and children's museums and so on through older engagement in, in performing arts venues. And we've really looked at how that breaks down over time. Um, but one of the things that we've done is really given uh, organizations the tools to uh, best serve their audiences, and and they know their audiences the best. Um, so, in in addition to the the sort of operating support um, that provides those opportunities, what we're looking at is um, creating new kinds of content innovation that goes on within organizations, um, engaging people. Um, through multilingual um, opportunities. Um, we've partnered with organizations to create multilingual programs. Um, in the cultural fund, we've seen, you know, one of, one of the things that I like to celebrate in, in the cultural fund and with our, with our work at Connecticut Humanities is, you know, when I started five years ago, um, the, or, the number of organizations that we served or funded um, that were facing or led by uh, people of color uh, was only a handful. And now roughly 10% of our um, organizations that we have uh, connected with in the cultural fund uh, are doing that. So there's a significant increase. And I think, you know, there's there's also a new um, uh, renewed interest in engaging um, across our cultural boundaries, our racial differences, our age um, um, and gender diversity. I think there are um, great opportunities um, where these organizations uh, are opening their doors um, to the breadth of our uh, public. And that's really exciting. And I think that also aligns with Connecticut's efforts to um, really engage broadly uh, the educational uh, infrastructure um, where we have um, um, curriculum, multicultural curriculum that's now being created, um, Black and Latino, Native American, uh, and so on. Um, and this is this is really an opportunity for Connecticut to embrace all of this and, and uh, connect those dots uh, across our educational infrastructure and our cultural infrastructure. And Jason Mancini, he's the executive director of Connecticut Humanities. Well, thank you so much for joining us and celebrating this work and connecting the dots with us, Jason. Thanks so much, Catherine. Great to be with you.
And coming up next, we'll hear from two museum leaders in our state. And we also want to hear from you, too. If you want to share your favorite museum, theater, dance school, or craft space, give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're checking in with arts and cultural organizations in the state. And we want to hear from you. Share your favorite museum or theater or shout out to your favorite sewing school or dance class. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And joining us now to share how they've innovated throughout the pandemic is Jason Patlas. He's a president and CEO of the Maritime Aquarium in Norwalk, as well as Robert Kret, who is a CEO of the Connecticut Museum of Culture and History, formerly known as the Connecticut Historical Society. Thank you both for joining us on Where We Live this morning. Happy to be here. Good morning. Thank you for having us. And Jason, we want to start with you. The Maritime Aquarium established an online educational programming that ultimately won a Best Education Initiative Award by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, which is really exciting. Is this something that the museum will continue to offer, or is the focus back on the museum itself? Well, thank you for starting with that uh, fact. We're very proud of that effort. We started the day that we closed in March of Uh, 2020, working with Norwalk Public Schools to stand up an online interactive effort because we were an early leader on that. It became an international program that we managed. We do continue uh, virtual programming, uh, but certainly not to the extent that uh, we did during the pandemic. But we certainly see uh, continued interest in that form of engagement. And we also talked a bit about digital infrastructure earlier and like you mentioned just now, too, it's something that the pandemic really sort of ushered in. And and this digital programming was created to fill in for the many, many educational programs that the museum had offered on site and in schools. We also talked about the, the, the fact that overall museums reported school trips were only about halfway back to 2019 levels. So I want to check in with you, too. You know, what about the aquarium at this stage? Are you seeing an increase, a decrease, a mix? You know, what are you seeing? So in terms of school groups and uh, and summer camps, we are um, as 
robust, if not more so, than we were prior to the pandemic. Our numbers have returned very significantly. In the fall of this past year, it was slow, but the spring picked up quite a bit, and our summer camps um, are near 100% capacity. We've got a handful of openings uh, in a couple of sessions in at the end of July and August, but we are at 95% capacity in our summer summer camps, which is um, better than we've been um, in uh, in many, many years, even before the pandemic. Well, to me, that's close to an A+. Plus, so that's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 our, and our general attendance also this past year has uh, has been at our highest level in a decade. Um, we've seen uh, we've seen more uh, visitors coming in than we have uh, in the last 10 years. Well, that's good news to have this morning. And Robert, the Historical Society is now the Connecticut Museum of Culture and History. You know, in what ways was this meant to welcome a wider audience? Well, thank, thanks for that question. Uh, actually, this started uh, pre-pandemic back in uh, the times before, as they say. Uh, we were doing strategic planning in January of 2020. And uh, when the pandemic hit, I thought we were going to put out all of the planning on the side, but the leadership of uh, our board uh, really insisted that we go forward. And in June, we uh, adopted a new strategic plan that talked about the organization becoming more accessible, more inclusive, and more diverse, and having a greater impact on our audience. And that led to conversations about uh, potentially renaming uh, the institution. And I've learned from longtime supporters of the organization that uh, they've been talking about changing the name for 25 years or more. Uh, we ended up uh, hiring a marketing firm, Adams and Knight, to help us with the process. We had over 800 people participate with surveys and focus groups, and not one of those individuals said, keep the same name. And so the, the sense from the board and the staff uh, with the organization was that moving away from the words historical and society would really create more of a, a welcoming uh, sensibility with uh, the Connecticut Museum of Culture and History uh, as the new name. And it really does take a look at what we have been doing for the last 10 years or so. Uh, we took a look at a number of our exhibitions and programs and saw that in the last 10 years, over 75 uh, public programs and exhibitions dealt with people of color. And so in a way, uh, we're really catching up a little bit in terms of uh, the name of the organization, really better representing who and what we are. And it's not just about looking backwards uh, at who we were, but who we are today and who we can be tomorrow. And with your sort of rebranding, changing the name of the museum, how how are you thinking about that mission more broadly? You know, for example, we know there's a the community history project is in the works. Uh, the project is focused on a diverse and inclusive representation of COVID nineteen. Uh, this is uh, as opposed to the submission generated collection from 2020, which the Hartford Current had reported was largely from white, affluent, and educated or suburban residents. So using that sort of as an example, you know, what is the museum, how is the museum thinking about broadening uh, the mission? Sure. Well, again, great, great question, and I'm uh, glad you teed it up. Uh, the Community History Project is an effort to really take a look at uh, our collecting uh, practices and policies and what groups are represented by those collections. When the pandemic hit, I asked the staff to take a look at what we had in our collections that related to the 
the Spanish uh, flu in, in uh, 1918, and there was literally nothing in uh, our records about the impact on the community uh, that related to that tragedy. So our curatorial staff, really led by Eileen Frank, decided to submit an application to the Institute for Museum and Library Services, a federal agency that funds these sorts of programs to document and uh, to record oral histories from 100 individuals that dealt with uh, first responders, funeral home directors, um, individuals across the state that were impacted by COVID-19. And we have today about 75 or 80 of those uh, oral histories recorded and will become part of the permanent record of the organization and has really helped us to get out away from uh, our home base here in Hartford and stretch across the the rest of the state of Connecticut and to better document the, the histories of uh, those voices so that they're part of the historical record. And a quick reminder for our listeners that you can also join in on the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We have Lee from Reading who called in to shout out Theater Works in New Milford which is a favorite performing arts space. Thank you so much for that shout out. And so give us a call if you want to shout out your favorite space. And Jason, I want to um, come back to you real quickly uh, with what we were just talking about. How will you weigh in on this topic in terms of the importance of welcoming in a wider audience in the state, especially since you're seeing sort of full capacity of people coming uh, back to the aquarium? So that is... um uh, that is also a priority of ours. We did put off our strategic planning during the pandemic. We are taking that on now and expanding our audience, expanding uh, the demographics and the diversity of our guests uh, is a priority. We are helped very much by uh, the state this year, um, especially with Jason Mancini, your speaker earlier this morning. Uh, thanks to the General Assembly and um, several years ago, leadership of Governor Lamont, we are participating in what's known as Connecticut uh, Summer at the Museum, which is uh, a state-funded initiative uh, in which we're participating with several other uh, cultural institutions to have all Connecticut families, uh, children 18 and under with one caregiver, come to the aquarium free of charge for the summer starting July one through Labor Day weekend. And by removing the admission fee, it opens the door to anybody and everybody who is a Connecticut resident, 18 and under with one caregiver. And so it removes the price barriers, it removes a lot of the other impediments that families um, might have to come and visit the Maritime Aquarium. So that program gives us a significant boost in reaching new audiences and, um, and more diverse audiences. And just a quick reminder, too, for our listeners that you can find more information on that on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. And thank you so much to Jason Patlas, who's the president and CEO of the Maritime Aquarium in Norwalk for your time this morning. And Robert Critt, CEO of the Connecticut Museum of Culture and History, will be staying with us. And ahead, we'll be previewing early plans to celebrate the U.S. semi-quincentennial or the 250th anniversary of the country's founding. A reminder that you can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've been checking in with a few arts and cultural organizations here in our state, talking about the importance of school field trips and museums working on being more inclusive. A part of this discussion also includes our rich network of historical sites. And many of these sites will play an integral role as the region preps plans to celebrate the U.S. semi-quincentennial or the 250th anniversary of the country's founding. And here to discuss how the state's revolutionary history is being retaught is Denise Merrill. She's a former Connecticut Secretary of State. And still with us is Robert Kret, CEO of the Connecticut Museum of Culture and History, as well as Cindy Toulouse, who is a development manager for Connecticut Humanities. Thank you all for being here with us this morning. And I want to start this conversation with Denise. You know, we know it's very early stages here still, but how did you get involved in what's being called America 250? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sounds like we might not have Denise around. Oh, there we are. Denise, are, are we there? there? Oh, yep. That's okay. Perfect entrance. So, <laughs> if you yeah. want to tell us about the early stages of, of uh, America's 250. Uh, sure. Uh, actually, uh, at the time, and this is maybe a year or so ago, uh, I was still Secretary of the State, and it came to my attention uh, that. In 1776, of course, we had the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and it would be the semi-quincentennial, and I like to say the 250th because that's too hard to say, um, the, of, of the signing, which, which is really just a moment uh, that we can commemorate, but also a moment that changed history. And um, so I asked the governor if I could uh, establish commission. We, of course, being one of the original 13 colonies, played an outsized role here in Connecticut, I think, in this revolution. Uh, and he agreed to uh, form the commission, which he did uh, by executive order in uh, July of 2022. So since that time, uh, we've organized a commission and had a lot of thinking around exactly what we want to commemorate and how. And I think our primary mission is really everything you've been talking about all morning, engaging the public in the history of this great moment and um, maybe doing it in new and different ways. And also looking at how it has shaped this country and how it will shape our future. Uh, the ideas and ideals, if you will, of, of the moment. And um, it's been a very interesting discussion so far. The, co the commission has met a few times already. There is a website and we can talk about that later. Uh, but I see it as an opportunity to re-engage the public in, in civic life. And I, that's what we've been talking about. The impact of COVID has been profound. And, um, and, and really civic engagement and civic education has been declining for many years in our schools. Uh, it's been squeezed out of curriculum by a lot of other issues. And so I see this as an opportunity to re-engage. Well, I'm really excited to see what you come up with this project. It'll be really fun to learn more about Connecticut from here. And appreciate you, your comment about the word semi-quincentennial because I'm kind of reading it as three different words, really. So <laughs> it is a long one. And and Cindy, I want to bring you in real quick. Cindy Toulouse is a development manager at Connecticut Humanities. You know, Can you give us a sense of how this history and Connecticut's role in it uh, is being considered as something that's you know maybe more tourism friendly or just more people friendly? Yeah, so we're thinking carefully about 
looking at the semi-quincentennial in kind of a thematic way, uh, focusing on telling more inclusive stories about our state's history, uh, thinking carefully about the communities that make up the state of Connecticut and ensuring that everybody feels included and like they belong in this celebration. Um, thinking about history, how we do it, how we ensure that we're collecting, Rob talked about this a little bit, collecting stories about the many different people of Connecticut and are able to reflect that in the future. Um, if we don't collect it now, we won't have it 100 years from now when we're trying to uh, tell that history. And also thinking carefully about how all of these different things are intertwined with civics and democracy and how this is a really special time for that. So it's there have been a lot of really interesting conversations with the commission. Denise made sure that it was a really diverse group of individuals that come from a variety of different backgrounds in the state um, and really have education and engaging the public at the heart of what we're doing um, and thinking carefully about who we're bringing in and how we're engaging them. And Robert, sort of with what Cindy was just saying, anything you can share about the museum's plans to participate in America 250? Um, because we know the museum recently got funding to also digitize records dating back to the Revolutionary War. Sure. Um, in, in a number of ways. I, I, I would like to back up a little bit and just comment that on a national level, uh, one of our uh, national organizations, the American Association for State and Local History, has recently published that at the bicentennial in 1976, 30 to 40% of the museums that exist today were founded in and around that same time period. And so nationally, we're talking about what the 250th might do in a similar way. And, and I hope some of the things that, that happen are collaborations, working together, really focusing efforts on cultural tourism and the cultural tourism economy, I, I think are important things. Uh, we have been recipients of funding for digitization of some of our Revolutionary War material that will play a big part in the kind of programming that the uh, Connecticut uh, Museum of Culture and History will do. Uh, we've also embarked on a project collaborating with uh, four other partners, four or five other partners uh, about civics. Uh, really the congressional directed spending um, has been terrific and will help us to engage thousands of students in a collaborative project that, that will involve the Fairfield History Museum, the Connecticut Democracy Center, the Mark Twain House and Museum, and Mystic Seaport, as well as the uh, Connecticut Council of Social Studies. Uh, we are all coming together to really create more opportunities for elementary school kids to participate with programs that will encourage civic engagement and knowledge of uh, civics here in the country. And one of our very own Connecticut Public Talk Show Disrupted recently spoke with Maisha Tisdale, who is the CEO and president of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community in Bridgeport, uh, talking about efforts to restore these historical homes just picked back up after pandemic delays. And there are some of the last remaining structures of Little Liberia, uh, one of the earliest settlements of free people of color in pre-Civil War Connecticut. Let's take a beat here to take a listen. It becomes important to preserve um, structures when it comes to a history like ours that has been erased or distorted, which in, terms, uh, in turn distorts 
the historical narrative of the nation as a whole. And I think it's important for people to feel uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable with, with history that is painful is a good thing. It shows that you have a heart. It shows that you have a conscience. So instead of saying, oh, I'm so uncomfortable, I don't want to hear it, you should say, I am grateful that we have evolved, that I am not this person, and that I feel discomfort in this situation because it shows I have a conscience. And we get beyond the discomfort. And there's a kind of sense of unity that comes after that discomfort. Um, and and we can all then go ahead and grow together. So um, the Freeman Houses, bringing them online as an experience, a place that people can come and discuss and, and be face-to-face -face with the past is an important thing. And it also shows in terms, um, for our own people, I think it's an inspiration because these folks had um, a sense of agency and in a time when their humanity was, people said they weren't human beings at all. Um, they could still have these accomplishments and look out for each other and arrange a, and have a place where people were free. And so if you don't look at the bad things, you also can't celebrate the progress. You you need to see the the distance that we've traveled as a nation, the journey that we've made. And so the discomfort is just the first emotion and others will come after. So preservation, conservation, it's not just about the houses. It's about preserving a culture. It's about preserving the land and renewing the land. And it's about preserving the future of this nation where everyone's appreciated and giving us some kind of stability in that. Again, that was Maisa Tisdale, who's a CEO and president of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community in Bridgeport. And so, Cindy, after listening to what Maisha has to say, you know, how are the Freeman Houses a great, if a very complex example of legacy of revolutionary history here in Connecticut? That's a great question. I think they're able to speak to freedom and the priorities that or the sentiments of the people here in Connecticut um, and wanting to be able to live their best lives. And I think that is a lot of what we're thinking about when we're talking about being inclusive and telling those inclusive stories. It's Although some of the stories might not necessarily have taken place during the Revolutionary War, it is the legacy of that, um, the democratic ideals that were founded during that time uh, that have created all of these other opportunities for people around the state. 
And, you know, MISA also notes that the Freeman Houses are recognized by the National Park Service's civil rights framework sort of as the era of the emerging cause from 1776 to 1865 in this way, sort of connecting back to America 250. So, Denise, I want to bring you back here real quick. You know, what are your thoughts about this layered history and also the many locations here in Connecticut that can give us glimpses of that and help us connect with that part of history? Well, that's a perfect example, what Maisa was talking about. Um, Our vision of this is that every single person in Connecticut would be engaged in some way and understand that they are the inheritors of these ideas that change the world. And right here in Connecticut, I mean, the roots of these ideas were actually in the fundamental orders of Connecticut in 1639. This idea of representative government, of freedom and liberty, of natural rights. So uh, we we really did play an outsized role in the ideals and ideas that emerged from this period. And we can see it right up close, right here in Connecticut, uh, not just the battlefields, but also, as Maisa was saying, the places people lived, the way they lived, and, and we are the inheritors of that. So my vision of this would be that every single town in Connecticut would engage, we'd have some connection to every town and that they would have ideas about what went on in their towns locally and how it has changed to today and where we're going. You know, what's most interesting to me is for for many years, I've tried to get people to engage civically. I spent many years promoting voting and elections, but uh, it strikes me that this, this commemoration will be something where everyone feels that they are the inheritors of the revolution. We're living in a very interesting period where all parts of the political spectrum claim these ideals. So it's an opportunity to think about that and to bring everyone in because we're all Americans and we are all inheritors of these ideas. And for for those of you who are listening, you can find that disrupted episode linked on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. That show is also in honor of Juneteenth and profiles members of the 29th Infantry, a black Civil War volunteer regiment in Connecticut. And also, you've been shouting out your favorite arts and humanities spots in the state. Bob for Granby says the New England Air Museum is a great museum because of their vast collection of aircrafts. Thank you so much, Bob, for that shout out. And to the other Bob, Robert, uh, what else can you share about the Connecticut Museum's plans for America 250? Well, I I guess to back up just for a moment, I just wanted to um, comment about how museums can be places for families to gather. And uh, one of the other speakers talked about summers at museums. We're doing the same thing here at the Connecticut Museum of Culture and History. 18 and under are free. Uh, They can come with a caregiver. Uh, there are a wide variety of programs and activities that we have. At, they can all be found at ConnecticutMuseum.org. Um, and I just wanted to say that I think that it, as we go forward, it's about both and. It's not ignoring our past. Uh, we still want to raise up uh, the importance of people like Thomas Hooker and Jonathan Trumbull, but we also want to raise up the importance of people like Mary Townsend Seymour, who was a suffragist, or uh, Young Wing, who uh, established the, uh, the uh, Chinese educational mission. There are many voices uh, in our history that I think need to be more prominent, and museums are great places for families to go, for people to go together to explore uh, the great achievements and, and sometimes the smaller steps that have been taken uh, throughout history that uh, altogether make a big difference. 
And we'll love to bring uh, Jason Mancini, who is the executive director of Connecticut Humanities, back real quick to talk about this. You know, as we as we you know share stories about going back into our past and, and learning about them and bringing them into the future. You know, can you respond to uh, Maisa Tisdale and talk about the importance of folding in that very complex legacy of American Revolution? Well, you know, the the story of the Freeman houses is just extraordinary um it's one of the one of connecticut's best um untold stories that's now finally being told and i think it's really it it begins to open our eyes to see the full participation in the democratic process back in the in the revolutionary era Uh, most people aren't even aware uh how frequently and how much um, african-americans and native americans uh participated in this era and and um, imagined um, um, the revolutionary era in, in the same way and for the same purposes um, with very different outcomes. And I think, you know, Maisa's points are, are all very well taken. Um, and I think this is our opportunity to really uplift and celebrate the roles um, uh, that uh, African-Americans and Native people played in the story of America. Um, Without their presence and participation, uh, really none of this would have happened. Um, And we need to honor that and and share those stories moving forward. And I have a side note question here, um, also talking about another important part of this conversation. We have Baina, who is a children's librarian uh, from Wallingford, who called in and noted that Connecticut Humanities is important uh, support for libraries. So can you touch on that, Jason? You know, the role role that libraries play today, why is that important? You know, libraries, I, I think, really are so central to our our educational uh, structure and these public places where arts and humanities happen. Um, And and so as we think about it, we we really want to embrace um, all of the libraries across the state as these venues where uh, arts, humanities, civics, um, education, all of that is really embraced and upheld and it's accessible. And I think that's one of the most important things that we need to be reminded of um, is, is their central role in creating access for, for all of the members of our public. Um, we certainly don't want to lose sight of that. And we, um, we are actively engaged um, with library organizations um, and certainly the literature community um, as we think about this uh, this work as well. And Jason Patlas, we also want to bring you back in here really quickly. Uh, you're the CEO and president of the Maritime Aquarium. There's also an important salt marsh exhibit in the works. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Thank you for raising that. And that comes with support uh, from Jason and CT Humanities, uh, specifically seeking grants uh, to celebrate the 250th anniversary of, uh, of the nation. Uh, we've also matched that with federal support. And we're trying to do something very different at the Maritime Aquarium uh, along the lines of what we've discussed. You know, people think of us for the live animals, for the biodiversity we highlight. What we are looking to do through the new strategic planning effort and through these new funding opportunities is tell a much broader story about the ecological history, the natural history of the United States, how Native Americans, uh, indigenous peoples relied on it, how early settlers relied on it, the interrelationships, uh, good and bad between 
those early populations of the nation, um, all the way up through the Industrial Revolution um, and the degradation on our natural habitats, all the way up through restoration efforts uh, over the last 50 years to try to um, to try to conserve and better protect Long Island Sound and the salt marsh. So those stories really are very interdisciplinary in nature, cut across cultural, historical, ecological, economic lines of um, stories. And they will be very new elements of, um, of what we highlight at the Maritime Aquarium going forward. And Denise, we have about a minute left, but we'd love to hear any last thoughts for, from you. Uh, what would you like our listeners to know about America 250 or anything else? Uh, coming soon and uh, get engaged. Uh, when you hear about it, you know, go on the website. It's uh, ct250.org and see what's going on and and give us ideas. We're, we're looking for input from the public. Uh, we will be having public meetings around the state, uh, mostly online probably. Uh, but, you know, this is this is an opportunity for all of us maybe our last best opportunity to come together as a country and really celebrate both the past and what lies ahead. Well, that was very beautifully done. Thank you so much. I want to give a shout out to Denise Merrill, who's a former Connecticut Secretary of the State, Jason Mancini and Cindy Toulouse, who are both with Connecticut Humanities, Robert Kret, CEO of the Connecticut Museum of Culture and History, formerly known as the Connecticut Historical Society, as well as Jason Patlas, who is a CEO and president of the Maritime Aquarium in Norwalk. Thank you all so much for joining us this morning. And we'll have a link to all of the organizations you heard about today um, on today's show at our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>